When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You are tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I am your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 43. The podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the best rough grouse woodcock hunting experience in northern Minnesota. Check them out at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Gumleaf USA, premium, high-quality, handcrafted rubber boots, Comfort, performance, all day long. Get yourself a pair of Gumleaf boots. Go to gumleafusa.com. Use the promo code PU2018 at gumleafusa.com for free shipping. And by Onyx Maps. Download the Hunt app today in the Apple iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with Onyx And a special shout-out goes out to Onyx. They've been supporters of this podcast. They were supporters of a recent hunting trip that I was on that was the inspiration for this podcast and will be an inspiration for the upcoming 
Project Upland film featuring Sage Grouse and today's guest. Onyx brought us all together out in a camp in Montana. We spent a few days out there. I stopped in North Dakota along the way. It was an awesome way to kick off my upland bird hunting season. I hunted two new states for the very first time, North Dakota and Montana, and let me tell you, I was in the Onyx Hunt app all day, every day, in the truck, in the field, back at camp. I can't tell you how invaluable the Onyx Hunt app has become to my upland hunting. There are so many uses for it, the versatility of it, being able to, their tagline, know where you stand in the field and know whether if I cross this fence, am I in the next property or am I in, or is this just an extension of the property that I'm already in and I've confirmed that I can hunt. It was so valuable hunting an area that I'd never been in before. I don't know how I would hunt without it after the way that I used it on this trip. Seriously, if you don't believe me, check it out for yourself. They've always got seven-day free trials. If you're going out in the woods this weekend, download the Hunt app, sign up. You've got seven days to try it out for free. I know you're going to keep it. Just go do it. Download the Onyx Hunt app and know where you stand. Thank you to Onyx Hunt for putting on this hunt and for making today's podcast happen. We appreciate it. My upland hunting season has started. It's October. Where the heck did September go? I can't believe it apologize the project upland podcast we were away from you guys for a few weeks but we are back and we will keep it rolling through the hunting season i hope everybody has had a chance to hit the fields yet if you haven't we will do our best to keep you entertained until your first season opens up i wish everybody the best of luck in their upcoming hunts be safe and hunt hard all right let's do it today's show as i hinted at was inspired by the recent hunting trip that I took out to Montana along with some others from the Project Upland team and today's guest, Brandon Moss, along with some folks from the Onyx crew, joined us at a camp in Montana. We hunted sage grouse, sharp-tailed grouse for four days in Montana. We had an absolute blast. I was blown away by the scenery, the landscape, the hunting opportunity. It was amazing, and I was really looking forward to catching up with Brandon a couple weeks after the trip, after I had a chance to download and sort of go back and chat through some of the stories and some of the memories that we made on that trip, and also get to know Brandon a little bit more, which we did on today's episode. Talk about Brandon's history as an upland hunter. He's a fourth-generation Montana upland bird hunter. We talk about that. We talk about his line of Britneys that he breeds and runs in the fields. That's all I need to say. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Let's welcome to the show, Brandon Moss. Brandon, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you, man? Good. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining. Thanks for yeah. Thank. Thanks for. Thanks for joining us on the Project Upland Podcast. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, we appreciate having you on. Oh, I appreciate it too. Looking forward to it. So we were chatting just a little bit before I hit the record button, and you just mentioned something that I'm I'm definitely not ready for it. Now I did see some pictures of this on Facebook, and when you mentioned it, it kind of uh, snapped back and reminded me of it. But 
you guys got some white stuff on the ground. Or do you have any sticking on the ground, or did you just get snow? We got snow yesterday, and it stuck for a little while, but the ground is warm enough it melted it off by the afternoon. That's so. that's a little – okay, lay, lay it down for me. Is that early, late, uh, expected? What Where does that fall for you? That's pretty early. Okay. I haven't seen it this early for a while, so I'm kind of a little bit nervous, especially after last year's winter being so long. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard, and we we talked about that kind of at length. I know before my trip, and we were talking about talking about birds, but we'll get into all that. But yeah, snow. I'm not quite ready for snow. It's October first today. You know, this is this is the month of all months for, especially when it comes to Upper Great Lakes grouse and woodcock hunting, but really upland hunting in general. October is a pretty good month. A lot of seasons are open. A lot of people are getting out in the woods in the field. So snow can, as far as I'm concerned, it can hang off a little bit longer. I'm with you. (laughs) So we might as well back up just a little bit. Why don't you, like I asked my other guests to do, put us on the map, Brandon, let us know where you're at and kind of set the stage for our conversation tonight. I'm in Billings, Montana. I was born and raised here. When I was in high school, my dad's job was just down to southern Utah for a couple of years. But other than that, I've lived in Billings my whole life. So Billings, Montana, that's kind of, is that southwest Montana, would you say? Is it that far? Kind of south, south central okay. is more. Okay. Yeah, we're about two hours from Bozeman, okay. east of it. Okay, gotcha. So pretty much, pretty much spent most of your time there in Billings. Is that where is that where the upland hunting started for you? It is actually. I guess you can say I'm one of the lucky ones, and I started hunting uh, the uplands with my my father, and uh, so he took me out quite a bit when I was younger hunting. We did a lot of upland bird hunting. We did big game hunting too, but I kind of fell in love with uh, chasing pointing dogs. So it started off in eastern Montana. So the pointing dogs, they were they were a part of the conversation right from the get go. Yep. Yeah, I was born and raised. Uh, I think from the day I was born, there was Britneys in my house. Britneys, and you are still a Britney guy today, which I know because I just hunted with you a couple weeks ago. So was there ever any debate or thought in your mind of getting anything other than a Britney when it came time to get Brandon's first dog? You know, not when it came time to get my first dog, but it crossed my mind a little bit. Maybe I should get an English pointer, or maybe I should get an English setter, and then I always just come back to the Britneys. What do you like about them? You know, I, you know, they got like such a great personality, and and uh, I kind of always root for the underdog. And so the Britneys is a smaller dog, and everybody likes a big pointing dog and stuff like that. And it's kind of fun to see what the little dog can do. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You know, I, I obviously am familiar with the breed, Brittany. I don't know that I have ever, I'm just, I'm racking my memory. I don't know that I've ever hunted behind a Brittany before hunting with your dogs out in Montana a couple of weeks ago. And I got to say, they, they definitely left a good impression. I had a, I had a sharp tail killed over point like 10 minutes into the hunt your dog tough he, he must have tracked those sharp tails for at least 100 yards it was it was a, an impressive piece of dog work and i put a bird down so you're not gonna hear any complaints out of me <laughs> yeah you know i was uh that was pretty nice to get into birds that quick into the hunt he made us look real good yeah yeah he did we had that was that was a 
a fun day, of course, but we had it was a little bit of a production. The the Project Upland cameras were there, the Onyx Hunt cameras were there, and like I said, we had a we had birds pointed, flushed, and shot on camera in probably fifteen minutes, which I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a couple of different Project Upland productions, and it doesn't always go down that fast or that easy. So that was pretty good. Yeah, no, it was nice to see that. And, uh, it was kind of a the neat thing about it is, you know, we had the Project Upland crew there, we had the Onyx crew there, and, and uh, you and Garrett and myself. So we had some people there, but none of us had hunted the area before, and so it was neat just to be able to go into an area and get the birds. Right. That was that was really the one of the ideas behind the whole trip of all of us getting together in an area that none of us had ever been to, none of us had ever hunted before, and that was obviously that that kind of came a little bit from Onyx. They were they were big in in wanting us to pick a spot that nobody had been to and obviously using the technology and the tools to sort of scout the area and and supplement our hunt, which we did that. So you're right. That was really cool. I wasn't sure if you had been to that spot before, uh, but now obviously I know that you that you hadn't. So you were out the day before doing a little bit of scouting. We were targeting sage grouse at that point. I guess, you know, we'll probably go a few different places with this conversation tonight, but talk a little bit about, because that was a really neat spot and we hunted it a couple times over the over the few days talk about what you saw there and what led us there in our search for sage grouse you know on the way up i just started taking some of the roads the back roads off a little ways checking things out seeing the different country out there you know there's a lot of cattle ponds up there i was checking those and i found some that had some uh some sage grouse sign around them some some footprints in the mud and some droppings and stuff like that but I drove up on that area that we went to first, and it just it, it just looked good. The grass was good. There was good sage. It wasn't too thick. It wasn't too sparse. It wasn't overgrazed or anything. It was a good place to start off with, and uh, over the course of the few days, we got it figured out pretty good. Yeah, it was a really cool spot. I mean, obviously, this was my first trip out west, my first trip to North Dakota and to Montana upland bird hunting. So I saw a lot of new scenery, a lot of new bird cover along the way. It was really cool. But once we made the switch from North Dakota to Montana and started getting into the sagebrush and out there where we were legitimate sage flats where it just basically goes on and on, you know, there's a little bit of rolling topography in the terrain, but it's pretty much as far as you can see, just one big sage flat. And that actually, that area had some really nice, uh, grass mixed in with it so it it to me somebody who's used to to hunting thick rough grouse and woodcock woods like it it felt good because the birds had a little bit of supplemental grass and it just didn't seem so barren because some of the some of those sage flats they're pretty barren other than the sage brush but you tell me the birds will still use that won't they yeah you know it's pretty critical for those birds especially uh in the nesting season they'll get under that sage brush and uh, basically make a canopy and make a nest under there. But if they don't have that grass, and it's not the grass that you're thinking of, like the green grass, it's that old, dead-looking grass. If they don't have that, they don't have the protection that they need to build those nests. So they're pretty important uh, for the sage-grouse. And, you know, it gives them, uh, it attracts insects for them to have food and 
and that so and it gives them the cover from the predators as well so that that grass is pretty almost as vital as the sagebrush itself yeah yeah that that makes sense i mean they're they're no different really they're different in some ways but in in many ways they're no different than many upland birds they rely on they rely on their cover their habitat and camouflage to to hide from most of their predators predators i would assume but yeah that was a that was a really neat area like i said we hunted it a couple times we harvested sharp-tailed grouse in there we harvested sage grouse in there we didn't see any hunts but two of the three species that we were technically after we had some really good hunts in there and i guess where we started talking about this is we got on them right away that was pretty fun uh so we started talking a little bit about sage grouse there now sage grouse you mentioned that you you'd been hunting from an early early age hunting over Brittany's. what were those early pursuits what did they look like for you brandon were that were you guys chasing sage grouse sharp tails huns were you chasing them all pheasants i mean what do those early pursuits look like for you you know one of the unique things about montana is uh the type of birds we have in, in the in the same areas and so like even this week i i went to an area where i saw sage grouse sharp tail huns and chucker all the same day and i actually did see pheasant too so i saw five species of birds but growing up you know we'd go in central and, and eastern montana would go out there with my dad my brother he'd come with us too and he's not as much of a upland hunter as he is a big game hunter but he still still enjoyed it and still came with us and everything but we'd head out there and uh you'd hunt you didn't know what you're gonna get when the dogs were on point you, you could get either a sage grouse a pheasant a, a sharp tail or a hunt and you know the birds were birds were pretty plentiful we didn't go through as much of a season change back then there wasn't as much of a major drought then the next year there wasn't the big hard winters that we're having like now so it seemed like that that the grasses were a little bit more stable and uh, a little bit more water around for the birds yeah and that water was that was another thing that you know because i i was obviously really reliant on you and as far as trying to understand the cover and, and really understand what we were doing chasing birds out there but water water is another thing that you were you were really keying in on it and you know some of it was some of it was cattle ponds and that kind of stuff is is important i mean do you do you always look for those those sort of watering holes where you're gonna put dogs down and hunt birds no i don't but um and i'll I'll tell you the reason why i was doing it there is birds obviously need water so they give you a good indicator there but i've shot birds in places I don't know where there's water for miles. Somehow those birds get water from somewhere, and so they'll be out in some of the driest land there is. So, you know, if the water's there, I key in on it to get a sign to see what's going on in the area. And um, but if it's not, if the area still looks good, I'll try. Uh, I'll try different areas. You know, like some of those sage grouse that we got into up uh, a little bit higher up there on the on the hill there from the closest source of water, they were probably a good two miles away. And so we had, to, we had to, they either they flew in there or they got water from somewhere else within the area. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I, I definitely have heard of birds, you know, they, they can get water through, through the food that they eat. 
Uh, I don't know about like insects and stuff, but you know, I, I would have a, my first thought would be berries and stuff, but I don't think we saw a lot of berries out there. So I guess that'd be a good question for a sage biologist, sage grouse biologist, which I'm not. And I don't think you are either. Are you Brandon? No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as much as I'd like to be, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was pretty cool when we, we did drop down in near those cattle ponds that's a good spot to look for tracks. And that was another thing that you'd kind of pointed out to us. And, and, you know, you'd think like you can walk, you can cover a lot of ground out there and there's not, there's not always clear objectives as far as what you want to hit, but sure enough, you start paying attention and, and we would look down we would see droppings, we'd see tracks and we would see sign of birds. And that's obviously something you're going to key in on when you, when you hunt, but it's a, uh, it's a little bit hard to target them. I felt like out in those flats. And I mean, you pretty much just, you end up doing a lot of walking and, and hopefully, hopefully the dogs go on point basically. Yeah. There's a lot of times that you just, you know, you kind of feel like you're in an aim, aimless walk out there. You just go out in the direction, but you know, I, I like to, I like to pick a, a, a spot, you know, I'll say, you know, look at that knoll down there. I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a walk down to it. Maybe it's a mile, two miles away or whatever it is. So I'll start going down there and along the way I'll see, droppings or whatever sign you see and you'll see it in the open grass you'll see it in, in places like that so it's like all right now i'm gonna start keying in on this open more open grass area maybe hit the sagebrush around it and that's when you can start hitting different marks and get a little bit more purpose to your walks yeah i think even even just for hunter sanity to to pick a spot like that like you were probably you were probably leading us all as a crew in some direction and we just would kind of look over at you and and i would i was basically keying off you like our dogs key off us i was like oh brandon's going this way i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep on walking but i'm gonna head that way well luckily it worked out the way it is i don't know if that's always the best plan to follow me but (laughs) yeah yeah it worked out it worked out we got into birds we had a lot of fun it was a good time now I guess talk a little bit more about sage grouse and sort of the story behind sage grouse in your family, because you are certainly not the first person in your family to hunt sage grouse. You've actually got a little bit of a lineage of sage grouse hunters going. Yeah, I'm a fourth generation sage grouse hunter myself and my uh, daughters. I have three daughters and they started hunting birds with me. The oldest one and the younger two are chomping at the bit to get out there and go with me so they're going to be the fifth generation of the moss family to be hunting sage grouse and upland birds but it started you know that i know of my my great-grandfather was hunting them and i know my i kind of got my dad passed away last year and uh i got kind of stories for him growing up and a little bit for my grandpa as well but i know my grandfather started hunting sage grouse with his father in 1909 and uh, they tell me that they'd uh, get in the horse and wagon, and they'd go probably three or four days to a different area and start hunting sage grouse. And there's some different things that stuck out to me. I remember um, my grandpa saying that he had a his dad had a Model 97 uh, shotgun, 12 gauge, and they used that. And my grandpa was kind of the bird dog. They'd go out and they'd shoot the birds, and my grandpa would get off the wagon and come back. And um, they'd put them up on the, the bucking board of the wagon, and they'd have all their birds lined up there, and that's how they'd carry them back. Do you know, what do you know about the Model 97? That's Winchester, I'm assuming? It is Winchester. I know, I, see, my, now this is where my dad really, 
I kind of took a advantage of my my dad being there because he could tell me everything about the models of the guns. But I think it was a uh, model ninety seven was uh, a pump with a hammer on it, and uh, so you you'd pump it and it'd uh, load the hammer up, and that's how you'd um, you'd work it. But then the next model came out and it was hammerless; it was just a pump. And later on, they they came out with a model twelve. Yep. Okay, so I didn't know the model ninety seven off the top of my head. I was curious because I know Winchester had some. I guess as far as today's standards, they had some different kinds of shotguns back then. And I actually, I'm looking at, to the left of me, I've got a gun safe here next to my microphone. I'm looking at two Model 12s that were both passed down to me. And then a a Winchester, I can't remember the model, but it's a lever action 10 gauge. Uh, I've, I've never oh, shot, wow. I, I've never shot it. My wife's grandfather gave it to me before he passed away. It's a lever action 10 gauge, but winchester so I, w- I was curious if you were going to say that it was a it was a lever action shotgun but <laughs> it was not but no. boy i mean after seeing the size of those sage girls the next time i come out to montana maybe i should bring that along yeah no it definitely help out that's for sure <laughs> they are they are absolutely big big birds actually i could kind of tell a little bit of a funny story the day before we met up with you guys at the lodge in Montana, Garrett and I were driving in to Montana from North Dakota, and we called. I called home to a friend of ours, Dave. He's from Minnesota, but he hunts out in Montana. It's one of his. Uh, he goes out there every year. It's one of his favorite trips. And we called him basically for some intel. Told him where we were going and what we were hoping to accomplish in the couple hours before dark, which was basically put up a couple birds and he gave us the lowdown on an area that we could get into pretty easily we went in there and we hunted it just basically just the way that he told us to we worked the cover just the way that he did we had an awesome little hunt couple hours we got up some birds i whiffed on my first sage grouse ever uh garrett's dog stella went on point facing us directly we walked in squeezed the birds right between us i bet 15 or 20 sage girls had to had to get up and there was basically i think you call them a flock i don't know but there was a there was a flock of them they were floating above me like they they reminded me of like canada geese like in the wind like they took off into the wind and i i had to have i just i let both barrels go right off the nose in front of this lead bird and the only thing I could think of is I just I shot shot in front of them and they just weren't moving that fast. I think I just shot too far ahead of them and I completely whiffed. But we were kind of blown away at the size of those birds because Garrett actually did bag two birds that evening, and he later said that he he didn't think that those were bombers. But uh, we'll see. That's you know only he knows that for sure. But the next day when we met up with you guys and got into a group of the mature males. And Garrett put down one of the big bombers, and there's a lot of pictures of it. It's pretty cool. It's like, wow. To, to actually see a large adult male sage grouse, I mean, that's the real deal. Yeah, no, those birds, they're big. And that one that Garrett shot, he was definitely an old male. And so um, and uh, it was neat to see it. You know, seeing Garrett, Garrett uh, shoot that was probably some of the – after he shot it was some, probably some of the best bird dog work we saw all weekend. He did a he did quite a little nice job getting that bird down. But. <laughs> yeah, I I have not seen the footage, but I did. Uh, I heard 
there were rumors and stories being told around camp that uh, Garrett had to play the role of bird dog, and uh, this bird did not hit the ground. Uh, did not hit the ground like a stone, as they say, and uh, it still had its legs about it. And Garrett uh, Garrett chased it down. And again, there is rumored to be video footage of this. Will it ever be released? That is up to the boys at Project Upland that are in control of the film, uh, you know, vault. So we'll have to see if that ever comes about. I hope it does. It was good to watch. (laughs) Well, I guess if listeners want to see my buddy Garrett chasing down a sage grouse, they're going to have to start sending contact emails to the Project Upland contact box saying, and just demanding it, you know, maybe by, uh, maybe by listener and viewer demand, we can get that release. I don't know how Garrett feels about it, but we'll have to, uh, we'll have to check with him. We can start a hashtag for it. Release the footage. <laughs> Let's do that too. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh man! So, all right. So sage grouse, huge birds. We got into a few. Your family's been hunting them for four generations. There's got to be some stories that go back because Montana, obviously, I think people refer to it as the last great place or the last best great place, something like that. So, I mean, there still is that wide open expansiveness. I'd never really seen anything like it through the lens of an upland bird hunter. I had been through Montana once a long time ago, but again, I wasn't upland bird hunting, so I didn't quite look at it the same way, but there must be some stories and, and I'd be curious, you know, how it's sort of the perception of your family on how things have changed over time, because obviously four generations pass the world, basically changes around the landscape but the landscape does not go untouched and so what what have you seen what has your family seen in sort of the the history of upland bird hunting montana and kind of i guess where do you feel how do you feel about it today you know growing up uh my dad always painted a picture for me of what the 60s and 70s and 80s were like and you know 60s they had a little bit of hard time they came back pretty quick they're uh some poisoning issues and stuff like that. And they got it worked out. And then, uh, the seventies and eighties were kind of the glory days he talked about. Um, and especially, you know, here in Montana, he'd tell me about the, the birds that get over opening weekend. And, and back then it was all about the getting your limit, and getting as many as you can. And there'd be, it was a family affair. It'd be my, my grandparents and all of my, my dad and my sister and my brother and, uh, and my mom, they'd all go out there hunting and um, come back with a, a full day's, you know, a full, usually we're it's open on Labor Day, so it'd be a three-day weekend. So three days worth of limits for for each person and um, both uh, sage grouse and sharp tail. So we always painted this glory picture, and I didn't think we had, you know, near the birds that we did. But I, I, I wrote a story about this, and... Uh, I remember going out with my dad one morning. Oh, it was probably in the early 2000s. And so I headed over and picked him up, and we went out inside of Billings here. And uh, just for a morning hunt before I had to head to work, and we got out to the field, and the dogs, I had this uh, young dog, her name was Kershey. is was actually Tuff's mom. And uh, I so I was watching her, and this was her first year, and she went on point, and I told my dad, there's a point. He says, which dog are you talking about? And I looked around, and all three dogs that we had out were on point in different directions. (laughs) 
And so we got in there, and the birds that came up in front of those points was unreal. I mean, I don't ever say the number that I think it is because I know there's people that are going to say there's no way there's that many birds. But on the way back, my dad said to me, he said, he was like, I haven't seen anything like that since the 70s. Wow. And so it kind of was like, oh, so that's what the 70s were like. <laughs> Yeah, so after that, you know, I started seeing, uh, we saw a big decline in birds, and the, the biggest decline I saw was after 2008, and coincidentally, that's the first year that we started seeing West Nile in the sage grass, and they went put down pretty good for a while, where it was getting hard to see them while you were going out there, but then, over the years, they started coming back up and coming back up, and I think they kind of adjusted to that, and we got still a pretty good population here in Montana. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I can at least confirm that, you know, we obviously we had some good information and we had local help, but we were able to go out there and go on a hunt and put up birds and we bagged a couple. So, I mean, there are sage grouse there for sure, but that's what I was really curious about is how much change that you've seen personally uh, and then, and then kind of things that your family had talked about now the west nile thing maybe we talked about that a little bit at camp i don't recall that but when that came out was that a really specific thing in that they figured out that that west nile virus was affecting sage grouse i mean how much how much do you know about that was it was it legitimately killing birds i mean did they do testing i'm obviously very curious about this because of what we've got going on back here in the great lakes but what do you what else do you know about that yeah they actually did testing on the birds and they were finding the west nile virus in the birds and when i'd be out there i'd find birds just dead um you'd just be walking and you 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 see that every so often but not like that and you just you know there was many times that year i'd be walking and the dogs would go over and and be sniffing around and there'd just be a dead bird there and i'm pretty much certain that it was from the west Nyers. again not being a biologist yeah that was my my uh my cue but the the fishing game and the biologists were doing tests on the sage grouse that year and did uh, confirm that there was west nile in the birds okay yeah that's interesting and at the same time scary because there's if if you just didn't say sage grouse there and you just said grouse i mean basically the conversation could have been uh repeated many many times over here in the great lakes with all the stuff that we've been talking about people are you know reporting dead bird finds i i can only say that i've i found one dead bird one time and this was two years ago i think so it was really before the major alarms went off and so I didn't even think anything of it. I just assumed that it was a crippled bird that got away from a hunter, which it could have been. I didn't expect it, inspect it that closely. But again, that's that's pretty scary stuff. And I guess if we know one thing about upland birds is they're pretty good at not just keeling over and dying in the field. So if you're starting to find that stuff, I would say, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit alarming. Yeah, no, the things that they have to go through, the droughts, the winters, the... You know, here in Montana, we get, uh, during the summer, we get over 100-degree days, and in the winter, we get negative, you know, 15-degree days, and then in the wind chill is far below that. So these birds can put up with a whole lot of variation in the weather So and uh, and not die out. So when you're starting to see them dead, it's definitely something that was alarming to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the I guess the positive thing from that is that you've seen 
at least you anecdotally have seen birds coming back. Do you, has there been population studies indexes in the in recent years that can confirm that stuff? Yeah, um, they did. So in back in the, before 2015, the, so they were the sage grouse was actually getting ready to be put on the endangered species list. There, uh, uh, how, what was the term that they used? They said it was uh, warranted for the endangered species list, but precluded by more important species that are, are in uh, in more of a dire situation. And um, there's a lot of lawsuits that happened over it saying you can't say, you know, the fishing game can't say that other things are more important if they're warranted. So they started really coming down and doing a lot of studies on the, the population of them. And over the years that they did that, they had until, I think, if I remember right, the date was September 30th of 2015 to make a decision on whether that bird was placed on the endangered species list or not. And they, they, uh, concluded with the studies that they were coming up in population and the um, programs that the state had in, in effect at the time to protect them, they weren't warranted for endangered species listings. Well, that's, that's good news, I suppose. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's, that's, so, pre- that's pretty interesting. You know, it's almost like talk about being accepted to be put on the endangered species list. It makes me think of like, <laughs> like sports hall of fames when it's like, Nope, Nope, you didn't get in this year, but, but maybe next year, <laughs> but yeah. uh, obviously uh, no, no species wants to be on the endangered species list. So the good thing is they didn't get on there and they have rebounded and there is work being done. We saw a couple couple of things out there that one thing that you pointed out. And then after basically it's like really obvious, I wouldn't, I didn't pay any attention to it until you pointed it out. And then when I started seeing it everywhere, but Obviously, there's a lot of barbed wire fencing out there separating property lines and, and keeping cattle in and out of where they're supposed to be. But in certain sections, there will be these little white squares. You can tell us more about them, but it's like basically like a little white white square piece of tin or something that's like maybe four square inches or something. And they put it on the barbed wire in like two feet apart, and it goes for pretty long sections. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's actually what it is. is the, it's the uh, the back of the siding of houses that holds the siding up, and it's pretty easy. They just go clip it, and they're about uh, three inches long. And so you can just take those, and what I do, I did quite a few uh, conservation projects with them because we found out in Montana what was happening. Or it's all over, but a big part of Montana here, they're doing the study, is um, – they birds would be flying into those lecks at low light, and so they couldn't see the fences, and so that is actually killing them as they'd hit the fence. And so they would put those markers up, and the so what they do, they figured out is those birds would see that and then fly up over them and stop from hitting. And I think it reduced it by eighty three percent. And so it was a big deal, and that was kind of a, one of the things in Montana that took a lot of. Uh, the conservation side of it, there's like in different parts of the state or different parts of the country, there was conifers that was overtaking the sagebrush and, and stuff like that. And so they could remove the conifers. Well, Montana, one of our big things was the fences. And so you get, I, what I did is I, I kind of set up a, a group and I started working with um, the Boy Scouts of America with the, the Eagle Scouts do their Eagle projects. And that would be their Eagle projects. And some of these, these, conservation projects and these Eagle Scout projects 
would have anywhere from 20 to 40 people out there hanging up these markers on the fences. And like I said, it, the studies showed that it reduced the collisions with those fences by 83%. Yeah, that's pretty good. That makes me, uh, it makes me think, you know, it's, it's fall right now. So there's lots of uh, bird activity in my house. We have, we got pretty big picture windows. We've got kind of a wooded backyard, lots of birds around and my, my, ever since we've lived here for like four years, it's drives my wife insane when the birds hit the window because she feels so bad for them. And so (laughs) like three years ago, she went on Amazon and bought these little ultraviolet stickers that they look like a maple leaf. And they're clear, so they're they're you know they don't obstruct your view out the window too much. But she stuck them all over the windows, and I I don't know. Eighty three percent sounds pretty good. I mean, we've definitely seen a, we've definitely seen a reduction in birds hitting the window. They do still hit the window, but but a, a significant reduction to the point where my wife's pretty proud of herself. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way of putting it, of uh, of relating that there. But you kind of a lot of people would say, "Oh, that's crazy. That doesn't happen. The birds don't hit the fence." And once you start getting out there walking the fence, and they they've way they figured out the eighty three percent is um, it was kind of intriguing to me is they'd walk down the fence and they'd find a feather. You think you'd be looking for like I've never seen a dead bird there, and so they find a feather. And then what they do is slowly start making a, a circle radius around that feather and do it. You know, starting off about three feet and start looking for more feathers and more feathers and more feathers and a lot of times those birds hit that fence and still glide quite a ways yep. out there and so i think i can't remember the exact number but some if they found uh seven seven feathers within there they knew that was for a first sure hit and sometimes you'd actually find the the bird dead birds and so i started actually doing that myself and watching you'd find a lot more places where you'd see feathers on the fence line you never thought about it before until i started reading more about it wow that's pretty interesting obviously they got in depth and and they they studied that well well enough to decide that hey we need to do something about this and yeah like i said after you mentioned it garrett and i would be driving around in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden we'd see a you know pretty good section of fence with those those little white squares on it and then we'd really look around and think okay so this this must be sage grouse habitat and we we saw a couple different at least one sign of a actual like it was like a sage grouse management area uh kind of thing and i think it was private land but they must have enrolled in in uh managing for sage grouse uh i can't remember if it was private or public land because i felt like you could hunt there it looked like it looked like a really nice spot had a little watering hole and it had those white squares on the fence but i guess all that to say that it's it's cool to see that the bird was in trouble and people stepped up to do something about it, to bring them back because they are an iconic bird and they're fortunately, we still have opportunities to hunt them today. Yeah. One of the neat things about that too, is uh, a lot of times is the ranchers that were actually um, footing the bill for these markers and everything that it, they uh, actually took it out of their own pocket. And there's a program set up with the NRCS that they could sign up with. And uh, that's how the, actually the sage grass initiative came into effect working with the ranchers. And so it was kind of neat seeing, you know, if you got together, you saw the NRCS, you know, figured out the places that those those markers need to be set up. The ranchers and caring enough about the bird and the land to to pay for the markers, which you would think they're not that much, but they're actually pretty pretty expensive when it comes down to it. And then you get the hunters out there doing a lot of the conservation projects. So it was a bunch of people coming together to get those taken care of. 
Yeah, those are the best kinds of projects, that's for sure. Yep. Brandon, let's segue a little bit into back into the bird dogs. We talked a little bit about Brittany's kind of at the beginning of our conversation, but you run Brittany's and I want to get I want to get your thoughts, at least on the podcast. I mean, I've seen you work your dogs, really, really enjoyed hunting over them. And I like, I like your style out in the field, but I'd like to get it on the podcast. Kind of talk a little bit about your philosophy about running bird dogs out in Montana. I'm pretty much, uh, so I trained, you know, I trained for a living for quite a while. And, uh, the way I trained and the way I had my own bird dogs were a little bit different. I trained for other people the way they hunted, but I'm kind of more, I don't know if you'd say, uh, let my dogs be a little bit of a free spirit. I let them kind of do their own thing. I'm not real controlling of them. I like to let my dogs range out further than what uh, most people do. Uh, I'm not letting my dogs get out there that 400 yards. Uh, back in the day, I, I used to have, my philosophy was the further the better. You know, if they're out there four to 600 yards, that's great. But when you're hunting these sage grass, and that's this big open country, you want a dog that's going to range out further away from you to cover more land because you'll be walking and a dog off to your left or right 200 yards out will go on point where you never would have went around those birds so i don't control my dogs too much you know i i basically want my dogs the main things i want my dogs to do is point back and if they retrieve that's great if not then that's fine i can walk in that that 30 feet and pick up the bird but i like to see a dog that has a lot of heart to it and and uh, gets out there and wants to hunt because this country will wear a dog down pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. That was, you know, a topic of conversation before the trip for us. And my buddy Garrett had been out there a couple of times. So he, he knew I had, I, I listened obviously closely to folks that had done it before. And I now can see and understand the importance of having enough dog power out there. I mean, like you said, it's, there's lots of land, lots of country and, everybody that hunts with bird dogs knows how hard they work and they'll work themselves right into the ground if you let them. So something that, something that we definitely had to be mindful of. And I, uh, I, I can echo a lot of the things that you said just from watching. I mean, that was, those are sort of the things that I took away and that you're, you're basically just letting your dogs roll out there. They're, they're always hunting. They're always covering ground. I, there were many, many times, many, many times that I saw, two Britneys stacked up on top of each other, kind of slunk down low, solid point, working birds. Those sharp tails were a good example and some sage grouse too, obviously. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, that was that was one one of the major takeaways for me is I actually got to see a lot of dogs run. I could actually see through the cover, through the grass. It's not that tall. It's not alder thickets. It's not uh, hazel brush and aspen thickets. I could I got to see a lot of dogs work, so that was really fun for me. Yeah, it's a special place to be able to come out and see, watch these dogs roll out here like they do. Um, I, you know, you're talking about the, the slump down and stuff, and that's another thing I do with my dogs. I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but I don't talk much to them when they're on the birds. I let them kind of do their own thing. And uh, the reason why is if they are out there, you know, if the dog's by me, I don't want to be sitting there giving the commands. And then the dog gets out there 200 yards and being reliant on me giving her commands. So basically, I just walk with the dog, and I let the dog figure it out themselves. They're born with it. I'm not. They know what to do. I've had to learn it. I mean, obviously, they've had to learn some of it, but I just kind of let them do their do their own thing, and it works out pretty good usually. Yeah, that was that was something that was pretty cool for me to see. I will sort of rewind back to that first story that we told, the birds that we got up 
a covey of sharp tails, flock of sharp tails, I guess if you're going to be technical, right out of the truck. Your dog tough went on point right away. And so we walk up and everybody's excited. We're thinking birds are going to get up. And I think I was just kind of happened to be closest to him. So I got up basically even with his nose, you know, a little bit off to his wing a little bit. And I'm tensed. My heart rate was going, nothing happened. And then tough started to slowly move forward. And the first time he did it, I think he kind of moved ahead, stopped again. I went up and followed him. So he's, you know, he's technically relocating, but we've got a nice breeze in our face. And this is all new to me, I guess, which is why it's so interesting. But it, it eventually got to a point after a couple of those where basically Tuff was just slowly working. He was on the scent, slowly working into the wind. And I mean, he was rigid with intensity and I was basically walking side by side with him. And that's where it started to feel like, I mean, it, it felt like minutes were passing it. Every step I took, I was just like on edge when that finally that first bird got up, got up right in front of me. I took one shot, dropped it. And then I bet at least another seven or eight birds got up and flush. And I, I couldn't even take another shot. Like I had just, I released everything on that one bird and to knock it down, I was really happy. And then I basically just watched the, uh, the chaos that ensued, but it was really cool to walk side by side with them as he worked those birds. It was just, uh, it's something that I, that I hadn't done before really. Yeah, no, it was fun. And what was fun for me is just to be, I was, I was back behind you a little ways and just sitting back and watching the whole thing. And you were queuing in on the dog, looking in front. You know, I think you're trying to see up there, like, where's the birds? You know, you should be able to see something moving if they're running this much. You're watching the dog and you just kept working. You two worked together. It was fun. I sat back. I did end up shooting at the birds, but more or less, I, I like sitting back and watching you and, and my dog tough work up there and then the birds get up and watching you, you did a great shot on it. That yeah. Bird that, came down dead. That's, that's definitely, it's, it's always, I mean, I, I get enjoyment out of that watching, you know, watching my dog work and, and seeing somebody else get an opportunity to shoot a, shoot a bird over my dog. That's always, that's rewarding to me for sure. But I do, now that you mentioned it, that is one thing that I just, it was, it was amazing to me that we had to have moved a hundred yards and I don't know how far, ahead those birds were how far ahead of tough and me they were but they couldn't have been too far i mean eventually we squeezed them and and got them into the air but the fact that we couldn't see them running i mean there was just low thin grass and sagebrush and they must have been using that stuff to their advantage so well that like that's the thing i kept turning back to you saying like what the heck is going on here man i don't know i don't know what is happening and i actually remember you saying Right before they flushed, you're like, these could be Huns. And, or you said something like that. And then, sure enough, a Sharpie got up. And, cause we, I think we were all thinking sage grouse at that point. But then you were, you were starting to think, no, 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 these probably aren't sage grouse cause they probably wouldn't run like this. And sure enough, the sharp tails got up. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a really cool way to start the hunt. It was, yeah, it was a great way to start the hunt. And they do use that cover for their advantage. They're, they're pretty good at skate artists like that. Unfortunately for two of them, between you and Matt, didn't, didn't work out too well in their favor. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. Uh, and, uh, we were both, we were both thankful to, uh, to put those downs, put those birds down to reward good dog work. That's always the, that's always a good thing to do, right? It was, yeah, it is. No, I enjoyed it. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the Britneys. Are you running your own line of Britneys? I know you just had a litter on the ground. Yeah. So, like I said, I was born with Britneys. Um, I got my 
my first, I had always been around them growing up, and we always had Britneys. I always had dogs that take out hunting. Then it came time that it was like, you know, I want to get my own bird dog. And uh, I got uh, this dog I talked about earlier. Her name was Kershey. And um, she, uh, I guess she was kind of a field trial dropout. She didn't make it in the field trial leagues. And so um, I got her, and I started working, and she just, we just connected. And I ended up, you know, the, I'll skip to the end of the story. Kershey was, uh, she was always my girl, and I had to put her down at age 17. She was still hunting at 17, but I knew that winter was going to be too hard on her. And so I, I, and she started, she started having, you know, the, the old lady problems and stuff like that. And her bones were hurting her, you could tell. So I ended up putting her down just, just, uh, my final, my final, uh, I guess, gift or no i wouldn't say gift but my what i could do for her the last thing i could do for her but she i guided with that dog i had other dogs she was a a great dog um and so i i did a lot of guiding and it was kind of funny because there'd be times like i i just needed her to perform and and uh, and go back to be with guys that had pointers and setters Uh, when you're guiding you know it's your job you need you need to have your dogs perform and and I looked down at her and she'd just be sitting there and she'd be looking at me and the other dogs would be running around all hyped up, ready to go. And she'd just be sitting there and it would be time to go. I'd say, okay, girl. And she would go. And, uh, she, by the end of the day, they came back and they'd be talking about that little dog, that little dog, Kershey. And, um, and so I, I just adored that dog. And she was, uh, she came to this earth for me and she knew it. She worked with me. But then I read her to a real nice male I had at the time. And I got Tough, which is a dog that, that uh, we hunted with. And I only bred Kershey two times. I only kept the one male out of her. And uh, Tough is, he's been a nice dog, but he's getting up there in age too. He's 11. He's still going. We had a, well, three or four days with him. And he was still holding up there, but I just bred uh, the other dog that I had up there. The other Brittany was uh, Dusty. I, I bred those two, and I got some pups in there. So they're uh, grand pups to my Kershey dog, and they're not real old, but they're showing a lot of promise at a young sign. So it's kind of neat seeing that this is the the third generation of my dogs that I've had and uh, the breedings I've had, and seeing that it just keeps going on, and you know, yeah, they say those dogs, you never lose those dogs. They're always out in the field with you. And especially, you know, with this, when you have more than you, you have the, the dogs that are their sons and their grandsons, grandsons and granddaughters. And, um, with their, it's with you. It's a whole, a whole nother aspect of it. That, that dog's still there with you. And as far as I, I'm concerned, I'm going to be continuing this line as long as I can. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a very cool way to think about it. I don't know that I've thought about it a lot in that way. Uh, I I don't have that, but yeah, I mean, you talk about having a, having a dog for seventeen years, having some of your best memories with that dog, and you know, of course, you no longer you no longer have that dog, but you've got lines from that dog, and you can see that you know her bloodlines are still out there in the field with you. I mean, that is that's a very very cool cool way to look at things and it's got to be very enjoyable for you to to hunt over those dogs it is yeah and it's just funny watching these uh watching these pups because they'll do something that just reminds me of their 
their grandmother. Oh, you know, sure. Sit there and start laughing. And it's just, it, it really does warm my heart. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's uh, that's very cool. That's that's one of the awesome, awesome things about bird dogs. There are there are many, but that is that is another one to add to the list for sure. Well, what what do you love about upland bird hunting in Montana, Brandon? Oh my gosh, do we have time for this answer? I don't know. You uh, tell me. I just finished my beer. <laughs> <laughs> So no, we uh, upland hunting in Montana. It's it's um I always say next to my family hunting is everything from me, and Montana is where it began, where it still is, where it always will be for me. I'll always be a Montana hunter, even if for some reason I had to up and move out of state. Montana will always I'll always be a Montana upland bird hunter. Um, this year we're having in Montana we're having a pretty hard year for birds the birds took a big hit but that's kind of where one of the big things that i love about it is it's now now is when the challenge starts for for us you know you're not going out there and finding birds in every place that you look you're having to really work to find birds and i don't shoot as many it's not about shooting shooting the birds for me although there are times i do like to reward the dogs um and my i think about my daughters when i come home they love to see what i what i shot and stuff like that that's you know that's another aspect of it bringing my daughters up with what i had and showing them the what i grew up with but for me upland bird hunting is not about the dogs it's not about the bird it's about the whole big picture and it's something that i'm going to be doing i've done for gosh this is my 28th season and I'm going to be doing it for hopefully another 28 or more with my own grandkids and going, going out and getting up in the early morning to go out and watch the sunrise over the Montana Prairie. Like there's nothing that can explain how beautiful that is. You get your, you get your positives, you get your negatives like this year is definitely a down year. But with that down year, you get to find out. All right, where what am I? What are my dogs made of? What am I made of? I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna find the birds. And it's not. I, I get into the birds, but I think I shot. Since you left, I I shot two. Is all. That's all I really wanted to shoot. Um, I got to some good days where I got to actually some decent birds and big numbers of them. And I took a couple. But other than that, I just let the birds fly and watch them go. And I think my dogs understand it. They they don't seem to get too upset. They enjoy watching the bird. You know, they enjoy pointing. They enjoy watching the bird flush, chase it, yeah. coming back. And I, I don't think they have to have the bird shot over them. But for me, without, without upland bird hunting, and especially here in Montana, there's... There's no reason for me to <laughs> to be walking around. That's my <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty cool, man. You hit on some you hit on some neat stuff there. the The last thing you said, I I had a thought to myself yesterday. I was out Sunday evening. I was out in the middle of a piece of grouse cover that I'd never hunted before. Last hunt of the day, and I'm sure it was shortly after my dog pointed a pointed at a grouse i walked in and and missed another one which uh tends to happen when when the leaves are up but i remember looking around and just you know i i have this thought often when i'm out 
chasing upland birds, like you mentioned. I'm looking around and thinking there's not too much else that would put me here in this spot on the at this time on this day, but I love it. I love standing there in a place where there probably hasn't been two feet you know, on that piece of ground for quite some time. And maybe there won't be for quite some time after that. I think that's a really cool thought and I have it often. Yeah. Um, I just, I am serious thinking about what you said, you know, there's, and what we were just talking about, there's a, it's definitely, especially here in Montana, there's definitely an isolated feeling to it. You get out in those, those country and you get anywhere, you get two hours from the road you get a lot of thinking time and uh, yeah. you get a lot of time to reflect on life. And I think that's part of upland hunting is you just get to think about where you're at, where you want to be and, and uh, how you need to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, man. That's uh that's pretty cool stuff. I, uh, I share, I share in, in many of those, those thoughts and, and feelings that you have now let's, let's end on a couple of a uh, couple of fun notes when you're out in the field, I got to see both of the guns that I think you normally carry, but uh, let's let the listeners know. What do you like to carry when you're chasing birds out there? Man, I, so I love, I have a, uh, there's a lot of guns on my wish list, but you can only carry one at a time, right? You're right. You're right. <laughs> so I got a uh, Browning Satori that I use. And kind of, it's going back to, it's tying everything together. Growing up, I remember walking before I could even hunt, walking with my dad, looking over and him having an uh, over and under with a, uh, with a gold trigger on it and have it open. And, and that noise it made when he put it, when he closed it, the dogs would be on point. He'd close it and walk in the shots, the noise it made when he opened it up and hearing the two shells inject and, uh, two, the two holes come out and putting two shells in the hollow noise and, makes from putting those in everything so I, I i grew up when my first gun was actually my grandfather's gun and uh it was uh automatic it was some of the funky automatics the original ones and uh so i used it but in the back of my mind i always wanted what my one of those over and unders with the gold trigger like my dad had and so finally the day came that i i broke down and uh and bought one and i've been hunting with it i think i've had it for see 19 19 20 years now i've been hunting with my own but this year you know i mentioned earlier my my father passed away and before he passed away he brought my brother and my sister and i together and said you know what of mine do you guys want to inherit and my brother took his uh my dad was big and uh, he my dad liked to hunt everything and so my brother and him hunted a lot of prairie dogs together and he took his he says i want your prairie dog gun and my sister said i want one of the family heirloom guns and then i said i want your uh your shotgun dad and so i had that shotgun with me and it's actually the first time i've un- uncased it since uh since he used it last and um i'll kind of tell you the story of when he used it last that if i choke up here uh, i apologize but it's kind of uh you go right ahead uh, man. <laughs> it's kind of a tough one for me sometimes but yeah, i think a lot of people enjoy hearing it is I remember my dad, he was, uh, he was starting to go down, downhill and he didn't, he couldn't get out there and walk with me. And this ties everything back together. And so I, he's, uh, I'd come, I'd go out hunting and he'd sit in the truck and I'd come back and I'd show him the birds and tell him about it. 
but a couple times he made comments says i wish i could still still go out there and hunt birds with you and uh so i said dad you know this one time i said dad here's what we're gonna do there's this little two-lane two-lane uh track i said i'm gonna get out i'm gonna have tough one dog i said uh we're gonna go for a walk and i said just follow me in the truck i said tough gets out so i'm gonna get you out and i'm gonna i'm gonna we're gonna get you a bird and so uh we we walked oh we probably walked for a good half hour 45 minutes and uh tough goes on point and i can't appreciate that dog enough for what he did he went on point he held that bird and i motioned my dad to come up and drive up the road so he was parallel with the dog and tough was probably only 50 75 yards off the off the road so i got there and i got my dad out i got a shotgun out and i loaded it for him and i had to hold his hand he was he wasn't stable enough to walk over there himself and so i held my father's hand over to this dog this this motionless dog out on the the prairie there and uh and uh, we we had to relocate one time. And it was really hard for my dad. And finally, that bird got up, and the bird was just a little too fast for him, and he didn't get he didn't get it. But and I really really wanted my dad to get that bird. And then he's he said he goes let's go back to the truck. And it was just a real calm voice. And so again, I held my father's hand and I walked him back to the truck. And uh, I was almost in tears that he didn't didn't get to shoot his last bird and to be honest i don't remember my dad's last bird but um i really wanted to get that bird i got thinking he got back to the truck and his his body settled down his breathing started to settle down and he leaned over to me and smiled he says that was beautiful to see and uh it just you know it wasn't about him shooting the bird he that 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 last time my dad got a walk in on a point and have a bird flush at his feet and he got that feeling one more time of of that and it was i don't know how to explain it but it's just very reassuring to me that you know i so much appreciation went into my dog tough for doing that for me and my dad for showing me all this stuff and and him being able to carry a shotgun one more time and it was just very touching to me and i'll always remember it it broke everything it brings it all down together broke everything down to me it wasn't about shooting the bird i got that experience with my father one more time and that's what was means the world to me but that that was the first time our trip together was the first time i uncased that shotgun um since that day i think since it's been ever had been encased at all i don't think he took it back out because he never hunted with it again yeah. so those are the shotgun long story short that's what i used i had a brownie satori and his was a old brownie super post that he had since the 60s i believe man dude it's tough to follow that story that that's gold right there as far as i'm concerned and you know i mean you, you pretty much touched on it i think a lot of people that anybody that's been up on bird hunting for you know a little bit a little bit of time and they've done it with their family or their friends they know that you know it's like you said it's it clearly it wasn't about it wasn't about 
bagging that bird it was everything leading up to it dog on point walking up on the point feeling that rush seeing the bird go you know you guys didn't need the bird you have that memory for the rest of your life your dad had it for the rest of his life and and you you know you guys have that together i mean that's that's pretty cool. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't imagine we can top that on this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us, Brandon. I'll, I'll ask you one final question. Okay. Maybe, right. maybe two, maybe two. The one final one is you got, uh, you got one day to go hunting. What are you going to go chasing in Montana? You're going to go somewhere that, that puts you on all the birds that you love to hunt. You're going to go chase any bird in particular. What are you going to do with, with your one day? My one day. Let's see. I think I'm going to go back to where it all started with me in the in the area here in central Montana. I think I'm going back to where I, I had my first bird. And, and it's an area that I spent so much time growing up hunting. I'm going to go back there. Even if the birds aren't the best, that's, that's where I'm headed. Uh, north of, uh, north of Billings here, ways and pretty, pretty much dead central Montana. All right. Go back out there. I'm going after, you know, I love the sage grouse, but I also love sharp tails and hunts. So I love to eat a pheasant. I'll go, go across it. And if I come across a pheasant, it's in trouble during season. It's <laughs> uh, so the hunts, the sharp tails, and the sage hens that really get my, my heart going. Good deal. All right. And last question. Somebody that, that doesn't have, they're not a fourth generation sage grouse hunter. They didn't have, they don't have the experience that you have today, but they heard you talk on this podcast and they're thinking, man, I'd, I'd like to experience a little bit about that. What what advice would you give to somebody that is just getting started out and wants to get into upland bird hunting? The biggest thing I hear that's the, the factor for people saying I, I would hunt, but there's this, is I don't have any place to hunt. The fact of the matter is Onyx has kind of broken down that, uh, that barrier. Uh, places I grew up hunting, I still hunt today, but since Onyx came out and I was able to to literally look on my phone and start finding new hunting places, there's a ton, a ton of land to go hunt. And that's kind of one of the fun things for me is I'll, I'll look on it. Uh, I'll be sitting there. My wife will be shopping uh, at the mall, and I'll go sit out on the, ch- on the chairs there, and I'll find the place that I'm going to go hunt next year, next couple of days there. And go check it out. So that barrier, just get with Onyx. Get an Onyx app on your phone. If you have a GPS, if you say you, uh, you know, we both use the Garmin Alpha. Yeah. Um, if you have that, you can put a chip in there. And it'll give you uh, access to all this, you know, open up all your hunting land. And you can do it on the computer. I spend a ton of time on the computer looking for new hunting areas. Um, that would be my biggest piece of advice. The next piece is don't overthink it just go just go and if you got a dog um, take the dog if you don't have a dog don't go with the dog you can just get out there and i think if you you get out there without a dog soon you're going to be saying i need to get me a bird dog and then that's when it's that's when the game's on and it's over for you you're hooked after that point <laughs> yep you got it buddy uh, i'm glad you mentioned onyx because i did want to uh specifically thank them because they were they were one of the big influences that brought us all together at a little camp in montana for a few days and and uh a lot of a lot of new people got to meet each other and go bird hunting with each other you know people that we had never met before and i think we all walked away friends and we all have some memories of our own which is very very cool so obviously uh, a big thank you to onyx hunt and 
and uh, AJ and Chet with Project Dublin for uh, for lining that up, man. It was really cool. And uh, yeah, Onyx is, you said it well, but I'll just add, I mean, you know, the importance of maps, I think, have always been there for Upland Bird Hunters. So they probably hear, you know, a young millennial like myself talk about gadgets and gizmos and apps and stuff and think, okay, maybe you're crazy. Maybe you're not Nick, but I think the, I think what it, I find something new that I love about Onyx every day in the field, having your maps in the field, I think is such a beneficial tool, whether you're driving along, you know, where to look for property lines or even, even uh, like a place out in North Dakota where you can hunt unposted land. So you know where the property lines are to check for posted signs and let's say you dive into the cover, you're hunting, and sure enough, you come across another fence on the backside. It's so easy to pull up Onyx and look up and say, okay, is this fence actually a new piece of property that I need to check if it's posted or unposted, or is it just a continuation of the same parcel? I mean, I, I mean, I found myself doing stuff like that, and it's just, and it just makes the hunting experience that much better. And I think for new hunters, like you said, it's a, it's an incredible resource. Yeah, I think a day or two after uh, after I was done hunting with you guys, I started here at Billings, and I had a uh, the Onyx chip on my GPS on my Alpha, and I was just gonna like I'm just gonna find a new area, and I'm just gonna drive until I do. So about probably about four or five miles outside of town, I hit a dirt road, and I don't know how far I drove, and I actually honestly don't know where I was. I just knew that I had Onyx, and I was just following it from going from state land to state land to state land, hunting it. I got someplace, and then I got out, and I, I uh, let the dogs out, and it was a piece of state land, totally totally legal to hunt. Get about 300 yards from the truck, the dogs go on point, and a good 18 sharp tail get up. You shot one there, go a little bit further, another group of about 10 sharp tail get up. A place that I never would have went to if I had not gotten to uh, if I didn't have my Onyx chip. And then I, after that, the, the bad part was I had to use it to figure out where I was. I literally didn't know where I was at. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, uh, uh, that's where the offline stuff comes in real handy. Yeah, I think I, I was probably about uh, 120 miles best I could figure from where I started off at. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's uh, yeah. Those stories are happening uh, all across the country with uh, a lot of people using using Onyx Hunt. So if you listeners, if you don't have it, I it's one of the best investments you can make. That's for dang sure. And we'll, uh, we'll end the commercial here. Brandon, man, this was a lot of fun. I, I really want to thank you for, you know, it was so, so much fun getting to meet you and, and hunt with you, hunt over your dog, shoot a bird over your dogs. I mean, there's, there's really no, uh, there, there's nothing better than, than that to, to kind of solidify and a little bit of upland hunting camaraderie and, and friendship. It was really, really fun. Uh, great story. I can't wait to see the film that AJ and Chet put together of, uh, the sage grouse hunt that we all went on. You'll be, uh, you'll be heavily featured, I'm sure. And, uh, really looking forward to that. As far as I'm concerned, as long as there are people like you out in the upland bird fields, woods, prairies, uh, I think we're in, uh, we're in pretty good hands. Well, I appreciate that. It was a good, good experience for me as well. I enjoyed it. The whole group of uh, guys and the, and the one lady we had it just it was great to meet everybody and get together. AJ and Chet, very professional in what they're doing. They uh, they definitely have a vision and they're seeing it through. 
And so it's nice to nice to talk to them and get to see what they're doing. So the whole the whole experience for me was a pleasant uh, pleasant one. Yep, I would uh, I would absolutely echo that. You know, it's again, it's not every day you can throw a bunch of strangers into a into a hunting camp and expect everybody to get along and have a great time. But that's exactly what happened out there in Montana a couple of weeks ago. And I would imagine if we uh, if we all got together again, we'd have just as much fun. So. Uh, Thanks for joining me tonight on the podcast, buddy. I appreciate it. We'll keep in touch as we have been, and I uh, wish you good luck the rest of the way. Have a great hunting season. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Brandon. You too. See ya. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. We'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast as they help bring you, the listener, each and every episode. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, and Gumleaf Boots. Please check out their websites, check out their operations, and support them as they continue to support the Project Upland podcast. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, videos, articles from Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. Check it out there at projectupland.com. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any and or all of these things. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit that little subscribe button. Share the podcast post. And please reach out to us. Send us your feedback, your thoughts on the show, and your suggestions for future episodes. I'm an Upland hunter. I love to hear from other Upland hunters. Tell me your story. Reach out to me. Use the contact form at the Project Upland website or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.